You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packer Night Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore that am. Well, like I said last night, um, I was really hoping today was going to be heavily um, focused on laughing at the Vikings. And kind of for the second week in a row, that thunder was stolen. Even against the Lions, you had, um, it was harder to find really negative takes, at least as much as I would have hoped, because number one, a decent amount of Vikings fans somewhat expected it or thought, well, this will be a tough loss or whatever, or, or a tough game. And on top of that, you got Kirk Cousins playing really well and Justin Jefferson breaking the single season receiving record for the Minnesota Vikings. So there's still reason for optimism. And then in this game, not only did you have the first half epic collapse 33-0, to but even at the end of it, now you have Vikings fans saying, you know, the end result is a good thing. The end result is not a good thing. First of all, for the second week in a row, they were disrespected by Vegas, basically saying your, your team sucks. The Colts are terrible. They are a four-win team that was on a three-game losing streak, um, losing six out of their last seven. The Vikings, at home, at home, were favored by three and a half. So if we call neutral field, you know, one and a half, basically the Vikings on a neutral field, they're saying are about two points better than the four-win Indianapolis Colts, who don't even have a head coach that have lost six out of their last seven. And guess what? They didn't even cover the spread. It was three and a half points. They beat them by three, and it took until overtime to get there. And as unbelievably embarrassing and telling as that is, I can't even celebrate that because it's the greatest comeback in NFL history. Last week, after getting beaten by the freaking Lions, Justin Jefferson breaks the all-time receiving record for the Vikings. This week, let's be honest, having a completely embarrassing performance against a putrid football team, and make no mistake about it, I didn't see the Colts do a single good thing in that game. 
Well, I, I let let me rephrase. It. I didn't see the Colts' offense do a single good thing in that game. It may have happened earlier on because I, I missed the first portion, but I also saw the uh, kick get blocked and returned, and then uh, Kirk Cousins threw a pick six. But yeah, I, I um, Matt Ryan is done. He's cooked. Remember I said Aaron Rodgers, sometimes it looks like he's really got to put a lot of effort into some of these throws that are just kind of floating out there. Man, Matt Ryan looks like he's throwing a balloon out there. You know, you'll wind up and throw that thing as hard as you can, but it still isn't going to go anywhere, no matter how much force you put into it. That's what it looked like when he was throwing. It looked like he was about to throw his shoulder out, throwing a 10-yard out, and that ball took 30 seconds to get there. On top of that, they're basically just running the ball up the middle every single play. And the, the point is, it's no wonder the Colts are a four-win team that has lost six out of their last seven. That team sucks. And I am stunned <laughs> that people actually sat here talking about how good this interim head coach is and he's going to get the new starting job and all this stuff. I mean, I, I honestly thought they were doing better than they were. I knew they won their first game coming back, which I, assuming was against the Raiders uh, three, four weeks ago or five. It was a while ago. Week uh, 10, November 13th, so a little over a month ago. But then they lost to the Eagles, which is understandable, and then you kept them to 17 points, which is seemingly respectable, despite the fact that you could only score 16. Again, the offense is so bad. But then the Steelers you lost to, and then Dallas... 54 to 19. By the way, Vikings fans, Dallas is sort of your competition for that number two spot. They put up 54 and only allowed 19. You freaking allowed 33. Oh, here's another angle. The Minnesota Vikings allowed 33 points in a half to the 31st ranked offense in all of football, who has scored 34 points. Uh, once against Jacksonville in an entire game. So for so many reasons, this was a complete and utter embarrassment for the Minnesota Vikings. It was an embarrassment. And I'm sorry, I watched the game. And I, you know, you can give them credit for the comeback. But to whatever degree you want to give the Vikings credit, let's be completely honest. This was at least 90% a Colts collapse. How many freaking times can you leave Justin Jefferson wide open? That's the entire, that is this entire team. The defense is not good. The special teams is not good. The run game is not good. The offensive line in this game was a disaster. You did have K.J. Osborne, I think is, is his name, had a, had a pretty good game. No question about it. But down the stretch, it was all just Justin Jefferson. That's all it was. Justin Jefferson's wide open for 15. Justin Jefferson's open. Justin over and over and over and over and over. And the freaking Colts, man, I, 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 they had scored a touchdown, and I was kind of like, oh, you know. In fact, it was funny because the announcer, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one, the announcer says, oh, boy, they scored a touchdown. That'll make this interesting. And I'm like, you freaking dummy. Why do you keep saying that? Why do you keep saying this is going to be? This, this could not be more over. The game is done. Keep it interesting because it's like 14 to 36 or whatever it was at the time. No, that's not interesting. Well, I blinked and all of a sudden it was 21. And I'm thinking, all right, let me think here. They need two more freaking scores. Okay, so they're going to lose. I get it. Colts are going to lose. And and again, 
not only did the defense just completely collapse and leave Justin Jefferson wide open the entire game, and you can see there were constant miscommunications. I don't know what was going on, but every time a pass was coming, and you could even see on the replay, guys would let Justin Jefferson get behind him and not even really try to cover him, and then would take off running and go tackle him, and then they'd look over at someone and be like, what are you doing? Constant breakdowns in communication. But then on offense, what did they do? Run up the middle, run up the middle, screen pass. Oh, shucks. Vikings get the ball back, collapse. Run up the middle, run up the middle, screen pass. Oh, shucks. Give it back to the Vikings. Like, you complete bunch of idiots. And I understand understand being conservative, but when they scored like two touchdowns in two minutes, maybe let's just scrap this conservative game plan. In fact, I don't know why we did it to begin with. If if it's working and it got us to 33 nothing, let's just keep doing it rather than going to prevent defense and run the football. But then it gets to like 36 to 21 and we're still doing it. Still doing it. And then they get to 28 and we're still doing it. Same thing. I don't think they passed on first down the entire freaking second half. If they did, it was a screen. I can guarantee you that. I'm sorry, but we're not in run the clock out mode anymore. When they're down by eight points, you're not protecting a lead. You need to play football. But again, maybe that's what they were doing the whole game, and they just got bailed out by a pick six and a block kick. And for all I know, that's as good as the offense could do to begin with. But I can't even celebrate, even though the game still was in a lot of ways, a complete disaster for the Vikings. Vikings fans are doing victory laps on social media right now like they did something. If we didn't see, if we didn't watch that game and just found out what the score was, that would be an embarrassment. If we saw the score was 36 to 39, I'm sorry, that's terrible. And the fact that this defense continues to be just the absolute worst, they are now 27th in points and 31st in yards. Again, giving up 36 to one of the worst offenses in all of football, and that's one week after giving up 34 to the Detroit Lions, which was two weeks removed from giving up 40 to Dallas, which is one week after giving up 30 to Buffalo. But can we celebrate? No. We got to hang our heads in shame because we were out there bragging and celebrating, and now Vikings fans are over there pulling our receipts left and right, and all we can do is bury our heads in shame as though the Vikings did anything good. They didn't. You think this is going to change Vegas's perspective moving forward? Again, they didn't cover the spread. They underachieved. Vegas came out and they're like, hey, against Detroit, we think that this freaking, what were they, a six-win team is better than you? And Vegas was right. And then the next week, Vegas comes out and they're like, hey, this whole thing with the Colts, you're probably going to win, but it's only like a field goal, man. Tell you what, we'll give you three and a half, but we still think you kind of suck. And they underachieved. They couldn't even get over that hump at home. At home. Three and a half points. I mean, even look at next week. They're right now, at least, you know, most places won't put a spread on it uh, right now. But looking at the Giants and the Vikings game, Minnesota are four and a half point favorites. You say, well, that's pretty good. The Giants are, you know, they're a good football team and all that, at least supposedly this year, and that's super great. Do you know how many times the Giants have won since week eight? Once. You know who was against? The Houston Texans. The only team that they have beaten since week eight is the Texans. They lost to Seattle 13-27. They beat the Texans 24-16. to 
They lost to the Lions 31 to 18. They lost to Dallas 28-20. They tied the Commanders 20 to 20, and then Philadelphia stomped them out 48 to 22. And the Vikings are getting four and a half points taking or whatever the phraseology is. You know what the spread is right now against the Packers? Minnesota's favored by one and a half points. Again, how does that make any sense when the Packers are a five-win team and the, and the Vikings are an 11-win team? How does that make sense for an 11-3 and team who absolutely should be a 12-win team after next week going up against, at best, a 6-8 and team to be one and a half point favorites? Well, it's in Lambeau. Okay, again, I'll give you another one and a half points. So you're three-point favorites? Three points better? This is what I'm saying. You cannot tell me that your record is legitimate. And if there was any other competent football team in the entire NFL that had that 33-point lead, there's no way in the world you're coming back. And that includes the Packers, because at least they can move the ball and get a couple first downs, even if the defense completely collapses. I promise you they're getting at least a field goal out of that in the entire second half. Or at the very least, slowing the, the clock down enough by... You know, again, getting a couple first downs. But anyways, spend the first quarter of the show talking about how I can't talk about the Vikings by talking about the Vikings. It's just annoying. I mean, it's again, it's it's still confirmation that the Vikings are a fraudulent team. But saying it just seems like you're a spiteful Packer fan because all oh, you know the greatest comeback in history. How could you say that? I just I just laid it out for you. That was a pathetic performance. And if you just look at the second half, it was one of the greatest performances in NFL history. But in order to get that, you had to have one of the worst performances in NFL history in the first half. And overall, again, look at the totality of it. What happened? You gave up over 30 points to one of the worst offenses in all of football and won by three in overtime and couldn't even cover an embarrassing spread. And again, even when I go to YouTube and I'm like, hey, let's just go see if there's some a couple complaints out there about the Minnesota. And I can watch the full four-hour stream, and I'm sure I can get some good... Uh, disasters, but it's just prior to the, you know, it's just cutting out the end part where everything is back to normal. But is there anything talking about, oh man, that sucked or whatever? No, Minnesota Vikings pull off the greatest comeback in NFL history. Largest comeback in history. Locked on Vikings. Vikings complete historic comeback to clinch the North. That's the other thing, they clinch the North. They don't even see the negative. Maybe somebody will see it sometime. 10 takeaways from the greatest comeback in NFL history. And, and the worst part about this is they still have the ability to put teams away. They are unbelievably volatile. They have serious issues. Their defense is playing like garbage. But they've got relatively easy games coming up, assuming you we still believe that the Packers are not very good. So you got the Giants, again, who are won one out of their last six. You got the Packers, who gave up about week four or five. And the Bears, who are terrible. So they could very well be 14-3 and three by the time this is done. But not only that, we're all expecting this big, giant playoff collapse. They're going to be likely the number two seed and likely going up against the bottom-seeded team in the playoffs, which is probably going to be Washington and or the Giants. Washington or the Giants? I don't think they're both going to get in. I don't know. What did I just say about the Giants? They've already beat Washington. They're about to beat the Giants. That's pretty close to an automatic win, especially in, in um, Minnesota. So they're probably going to win in the first round. Beyond that, they have the. I don't think they have the ability to sustain success against 
really good football teams. But they don't need that much sustained success. They need to beat a garbage team in the first round. Yeah, it is both, right? If the season ended today, they'd be playing the Giants, which is a joke, because they are garbage right now. So, okay, so they beat the Giants. And then the next round, what? The, uh, let's say, uh, so the Eagles are back in the mix. You see you got um, the 49ers played Washington and the Bucks played the Cowboys. So the Cowboys beat the Bucks, 49ers beat Washington, right? So you got the Eagles, the Vikings, the 49ers, the Cowboys. Eagles would play the Cowboys, Vikings would play the 49ers. I actually like that matchup against the 49ers because I don't think they stand much of a chance. They're too solid, and they have a really good defense. I like that. The Cowboys, I think they can beat. Right, just like the four, the the Buffalo Bills and and some of these other teams that are sort of the the Vikings remind me a lot of the Packers. Not only because they have that sort of fraudulent tag like they've had many times over the years, but because they're a team that, despite their issues, they've got that firepower. Specifically speaking, quarterback, wide receiver, like the Packers. You know, you got the one quarterback and the one wide receiver thing going on, where they can beat anybody. The question is, can you have sustained success? And and I think you're going to struggle against teams like the Eagles. Teams like the 49ers. The problem is that's it. And if there's some kind of an upset win in which, let's say, the Bucks end up beating the 49ers, can they beat the Buccaneers? Of course they can. I mean, they could end up getting lucky similar to what, you know, when you saw the Rams and the, uh, and the Bengals. I think we beat the Rams if we play them in the playoffs. We didn't get an opportunity to because we got knocked out before we got there. Let's say Dallas beats the Eagles. Can the Vikings beat the Bucks and beat the Cowboys? Yes. And yeah, I think they potentially could struggle in the uh, AFC if they get to the Super Bowl, but it's, you know, that's only assuming it's either the Chiefs or the Bills, and those are, again, two teams that I think they have a chance of hanging with. And the Bills do technically have a, a, a solid defense, but they gave up 33 points to the Vikings the last time they saw each other, and they just got into shootout mode. So I don't know if it's going to be an early exit. And then all this talk about one and done for the Vikings... First of all, again, very unlikely that it's one and done because they're going to be facing probably either Washington or um, the Giants, and I don't think it's one and done. Now, could it be? Yes, of course. They almost lost to the Colts. They lost to the Lions. They're not a very good football team right now, but they also can be. And even, even when they're bad, they can be good in other facets and just, it, you know, again, nothing else matters because at the end of the day, they got their W. So anyways, we'll see how it goes. Hopefully we continue to see good things and and make no mistake, this was a, listen, a loss doesn't really do very much. They're going to win the division. They're going to have a very good record. They're going to get into the playoff. Maybe they could have lost out in that number two spot. Yeah, I guess. But considering it's a win, this is as good of an of a outcome as you could have expected. I mean, what was the last time they had an impressive win? The Jets? Yeah, right. The Jets only win after their bye. See, we, we get stuck in the, like the Jets and Giants, man. They're actually really good this year. Nope. The Giants have won one out of their last, what did I say, five or six? And the Jets, after their bye week, have won one out of their last four. They came out of their bye week and lost to the Patriots 3-10. to 10. Remember that whole thing where they benched their quarterback? They beat the Bears 31-10, then lost to the Vikings by five, and lost to the Bills 20-12. to 12. Again, the Vikings barely beat them. Beat the Patriots, but... Barely, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess that is to the Vikings. They always do just enough, right? The offense does exactly what's required of them. If the 
other team you're facing doesn't have an offense, then the Vikings are like, all right, I'll just put up five more points. So if that happens to be 17, cool. And I guess we'll score 17 and still win. Actually, they haven't done that at all this year. Call it 20. But if the other team scores, you know, 30, well, then we'll get 33. No big deal. If they score 36, we'll get 39. Just freaking doing enough every single time. Most annoying team ever. Anyways, turning the page a little bit. Speaking of uh, the, the spread, the Packers are still seven-point favorites. As I said, I struggle to get there. I'm not saying we're going to lose. I just, you know, the specifics get a little iffy for me. But I want to look at, uh, I don't know, kind of kind of just a couple different things. The first is Romeo Dobbs. And, and again, I, I, I am not trying to put down Romeo Dobbs. I just want us to not, I mean, it's very similar to what Roger said about let's not expect too much of them. Because then when they don't meet these unrealistic expectations, we get disappointed and start to think, well, they're not that good and blah, 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 blah. People are right now expecting Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs to be this elite wide receiver duo. Romeo Dobbs has a 60.6 overall grade, a 59.8 receiving grade. He played in nine games. Granted, I think he, well, we could call it eight, but he did have one reception and 18 yards in that game. But anyways, call it 8.25. He has 314 yards and three touchdowns. He did have a good day against the Buffalo Bills. Five targets, four receptions, 62 yards, and a touchdown. In fact, the touchdowns in general to the rookies have been pretty impressive. Prior to that, though, against Washington, four targets, zero receptions, zero yards, zero touchdowns. The the Jets, nine targets, four receptions, 21 yards, zero touchdowns. The Giants, five targets, three receptions, 29 yards, zero touchdowns. New England, eight targets, five receptions, 47 yards, and a touchdown. That stretch there, granted the touchdown is nice, but the discrepancy between targets and receptions, whether it be drops or whatever the case may be, is not great. The lack of yards, I mean, he didn't, in that stretch, crack 50 yards. Um, And then, you know, prior to that was the Tampa Bay game. That was his big coming out, but... He didn't really replicate that again until Buffalo, which was significantly less receptions, but still 62 yards and a touchdown is a a decent enough day. But he's had kind of two good games, maybe three-ish if you want to include New England's five receptions, 47 yards and a touchdown. But out of nine, we'll call it eight, the guy had kind of two good games. We can't just expect him to jump in and, and just be this dominant player. If he does, awesome. And yeah, this is going to be more or less the first time that he comes back with Christian Watson, at least in, in any sense that matters, because Christian's actually taking a significant role. By the way, I don't know how much of a role Romeo Dobbs is going to have. We know Christian's going to play a lot. We know Lazard is going to play a lot. And we know Randall Cobb is our slot guy. Where does Romeo Dobbs factor into that? He will factor in. He'll jump ahead of Ture and he'll jump ahead of uh, Sammy Watkins. Did I say Sammy or Christian Watson? I, I still to this day cannot get that straight. Christian Watson will be playing significant amount of snaps. Sammy Watkins will not. But Romeo has not emerged. He has not become the guy. He has shown flashes of being really impressive and really talented. And yes, I'm hopeful that with Christian there, it's going to make things even better. But we can't just automatically expect him to have Eight targets, eight receptions, 73 yards, and a touchdown. We can't expect a 100-yard game, considering he's never had one. We can't expect multiple touchdowns. He's never had that. I mean, if he gets 50 yards and a touchdown, it's his third best game of the entire season. 
So I and and please don't get me wrong. I am so excited about Romeo Dobbs. I really am. I just get nervous when people lay out these expectations because I can just feel everything turning on him. I can just feel the fan base starting to turn because things go so quickly. He's a rookie. He's just coming off injury, and he's allowed to have bad days. Now, granted, he's had bad days, and people still think he's great. Washington, again, four targets, zero receptions, and we still think that he's the next coming of uh, whatever. I mean, that's good. That's great. But I, I just, it seems like sometimes people forget, and they haven't quite figured out that he hasn't been great in a while. And once people figure it out, they're all the way done with them. Then it turned, then the narrative changed to bust and everything else. Start pulling receipts on other Packer fans about how much he's a bust. And then it becomes that battle where, you know, there's, there's the bust camp. And then there's people trying to prove that actually he is the greatest ever. Just because somebody's arguing with him, they got to argue back. You know, that whole thing. So I'm treating this, uh, aside from, you know, yeah, we could win and we could go on to have success and maybe even sneak into the playoffs and all that. But I'm treating this mostly as I'm excited to see some of the younger guys. I'm still excited. I'm, I'm hopeful for Chris. I'm, I'm still nervous about Christian Watson. Even that is a small sample size. And again, if you take away the touchdowns, it, it's, I don't know. It's not a bad thing. He's not been bad without the touchdowns. I just, I'm expecting the touchdowns to drop off. And then what happens to the narrative? Even if he's a good receiver, as opposed to the greatest receiver in NFL history, if he's not the next Randy Moss, and maybe he is, I don't know. But if he's not, then what? Do we turn on him? Do we say Gutekunst is a bust or, or Gutekunst should be fired? What, 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 how do we handle that? What happens if Christian Watson has, you know, one reception for 25 yards and no touchdowns? Is he a bust? Was it all fake? I mean, let, let's be honest. To some degree, it was all fake, at least the touchdowns. Let's just... What I'm saying is let's just dial back the expectations and let's remember these guys are rookies and let's get excited about how, what the early production we've seen has been. If they do it again, great. If Romeo has eight receptions and 73 yards, awesome. If Christian has another two touchdowns, awesome. But if they don't, they're freaking rookies. They're still just figuring it out. Romeo's just coming back off of injury. Neither of these two guys, Christian's going into what, his fifth actual start as a, as a rookie? I think Romeo still has more starts than Christian does. I mean, starts as in starter, you know, not uh, the rookie receiver who gets nine snaps. Romeo had 25 week one. He was, he was the guy, and he uh, did that all the way through week eight. Week two was the only one where he kind of downshifted a little bit. I don't know if there was an injury or what happened, but 13 snaps. But other than that, he was uh, 35, 36, 38, 50, 38, 32, and then he played his one snap against Detroit, which 88 overall grade because his one snap was an 18-yard reception. So, and, and to be fair, he was getting off to a good start against Detroit. It was one play, but still. And in Buffalo, five targets, four receptions, 62 yards and a touchdown, 72.7 overall grade, 75.3 receiving grade. That's, you know, maybe he was going to go on a little bit of a thing there. I don't, and, and again, New England, the Giants, the Jets, Washington, that was kind of the dark period for the Packers. I mean, we didn't beat Buffalo, but I don't know, signs of life. This, this stretch here, weeks four, five, six, and seven, kind of just sealed the season. That's when everything went wrong. But we've since rebounded. Rodgers has looked better. The offensive line has been significantly better. Christian Watson has emerged. Defense continues to spiral, but I'm not trying to talk, you know, over myself and contradict myself, but I'm saying maybe things will be great. I'm excited. 
but let's just watch rookies and hope that they continue to grow and learn the system. And, you know, every reception is a bonus. I just hope he gets significant snaps. It's it's similar to Devontae Wyatt. I just want the guy to get some snaps. Um, seemed like he was going to start getting some more opportunities uh, after the Philly game because he was up to 20. So he kind of, if we look at his snap counts, he started off with 12, right? They were optimistic about him. And then they're like, all right, he's not ready. So it went down to four, seven, five, seven. Then week seven, they're giving him double digits, 12, 10, 10, 14, 15. Then they're like, all right, let's give him a ton of opportunities. He's out there for 20 snaps. That was the worst game of his entire career against Philly. Well, it's freaking Philadelphia, all right? So then after that bad performance, he goes up against Chicago, which would have been a great opportunity, and he did actually grade out really well. Well, they only gave him nine opportunities, which is the lowest since prior to week seven when he started getting double digits. So it just feels like he got a demotion after struggling against Philadelphia because, again, it's Philadelphia. I don't like how the team in general, you know, we talk about Rodgers and how he doesn't trust rookies. It's not just Rodgers. It seems to be a culture with the team in general. Matt LaFleur and Joe Barry and Mike Pettin. I mean, all these guys, it was the same thing. Like, I don't know, man. He makes me nervous. I don't trust. Why don't you try? All right, fine. Go out and play. He has one bad play. Get off the field forever. I hate you. Get off. Get off. Get off. No more. Jeez, I can't believe you talked me into putting him on the field. This is, this is horrible. Never again. Where's that really crappy guy that's played like five years and knows my scheme inside and out? Put him out there. Tell him to do stuff. He's going to do stuff. He's going to do what I say. Is he going to do it well? No. No. But he's going to do what I say. And that's, that's all I care about. And really, this is another great opportunity because as much as the Rams defense at least has some redeeming qualities, again, mostly just run defense, um, their defense is terrible. Excuse me, their, their offense is terrible. They are exactly what the Vikings defense is. That's what the Rams offense is. 30th in points, 31st in yards. Or was it 32nd? I don't know. It doesn't matter. 30th in points, 31st in yards is the Rams offensive production. Great opportunity for Jair and for the rest of the crew, but also for the young guys, for Quay, for Devontae Wyatt. Just let him go out there and make plays. I know you're not going to because you think that we're still going to get into the playoffs and you're still super, you know, motivated to get that whole thing going on. Just give me that one thing. Put Devontae Wyatt on the field. The guy's got to learn. Well, he's not very good. Well, neither is Kenny Clark. But you keep putting him out there. Who is good on our defensive line? Name one good player on our defensive line that's keeping Devontae Wyatt from learning how to play, that giving him valuable reps. He's already a, an older player. Let's try to get him up to speed as quickly as possible. Nah. We got other guys. Who? Who do we have? Dean Lowry is our highest graded defensive lineman. He ranks 57th in the league. We don't have a number one defensive tackle. We borderline don't even have a number two defensive tackle. He's got a 60.1 overall grade. 57 run defense, 60 pass rush. That's our number one defensive tackle in the NFL right now. That sucks. Well, why it's worse. I don't care. I don't. And you know what? That's not even true. If we're looking at PFF grades, he's our highest graded defensive tackle. Despite the bad games here and there, he's got a 63 overall grade. Uh, even if you want to say that PFF isn't the ultimate authority and all that, I don't care. There is no argument to be made that he's even significantly worse than the guys we have. Even if PFF is wrong, how wrong? How wrong are they? So much so that Kenny Clark and Dean Lowry and Jaron Reed need to be on the field all the time and Wyatt needs to sit on the bench? 
that's how wrong they are, that those three guys are really, really good and Devontae Wyatt is just horrible and pathetic? Or is it just that he doesn't have it between the ears yet, and so you're just not going to let him have opportunities? Despite the fact that even without understanding, he's playing up to the level of the other guys, which means maybe if he did have some better understanding and was able to learn how to play with fundamentals and technique and all that, that maybe he would be a really good defensive tackle and the only one on our team that was that. You know, we keep hearing how it takes so long for defensive tackles to develop, you know, year three or whatever. Well, he basically redshirted this year. So are we talking year four for a guy that's already up in age before he figures it out because we're too scared to put him on the field? What are you doing? I'm sorry, but you have to play the guy. Anyways, uh, seems like a good enough spot to take a break. So patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider visiting fertilegroundranch.org. See if it's something you'd be willing to support. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing slab packs from arenaclub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. So anyways, um, continuing on about Romeo Dobbs, now that we've kind of lowered expectations, I want to bring something else up um, that I found interesting. So... And I should probably find the exact thing, but I'm probably not going to. But let's just let me just summarize a stat that was mentioned. One of the biggest negatives for Rodgers this year, because again, not everything is just black and white, where everything was great before and now everything's horrible. Some things are still going really well. However, the biggest decline statistically for Aaron Rodgers has come in the one to nine yard range, not behind the line of scrimmage and not beyond 10 yards, just in that short pass range. That's been the biggest drop-off for Rodgers. And so naturally, you'd ask the question, well, who's that guy? Well, right now, the number one and number two guys in that range are Robert Tunyon and Alan Lazard. And I probably don't need to tell you that Robert Tunyon and Alan Lazard are not exactly elite wide receivers. Lazard is probably worse than he was in the past, and Tunyon is just a non-factor entirely. However... The other guy is Romeo Dobbs. In 11 games between Tunyon and Lazard, each of them has 29 targets in that range. Romeo Dobbs in eight games has 18 targets. And when you look at the amount of routes run, 
for Alan Lazard compared to Romeo Dobbs, you could make a case. I'm not going to do the math, but I would I would say it's pretty straightforward that on a per route basis, Romeo Dobbs is that guy. He spends more time in that range and has been targeted more often in that range. Now, before we jump to too many conclusions, let me just say, if I, I'm on SIS right now, it's where I was able to get that information. If we look at the rates and more specifically the values, Romeo Dobbs is one of the worst wide receivers in that range. I don't know exactly where these things come from, but on a, uh, for example, EPA per target, uh, points added or whatever, Romeo Dobbs is 12th out of 15. By the way, 15th would be uh, David Bakhtiari. Romeo Dobbs is the lowest of anybody with more than two targets. Overall, the EPA, he is the lowest. Negative 10.62, the next lowest is negative 5.3. So I'll say about Romeo, similar to what I said about Christian, we needed Christian desperately to be the guy that he has become. We need that deep threat. We need the guy with the speed to be able to open things up. And if he can actually be a good wide receiver and catch some of those passes and get some of those touchdowns, all the better. He's been that guy. Now we need somebody to work the body, right? Defenses, what are they doing? We got Christian Watson, who's the knockout punch. So what happens when you got somebody who's just battering you over the head? Your hands go up. You put your hands up to protect your head. We need somebody to come in and just lay out the Rams with that liver shot. You ever been hitting the liver? Oh, remember the first time I heard about it, you can actually do it to yourself if you wanted to. It's like right under your ribs. You can just take your fingers and just kind of like jab kind of hard under the ribs, right in that, that spot where your liver is. It'll jack you up, man. Your body does not take kindly to being hit in the liver. Your legs will just drop. Just nope, go down, lay down. Not taking another one of those, man. I need my liver. Body's in the business of protecting its vital organs. Anyways, <laughs> we need that guy. And I do think Romeo Dobbs is that guy. And no, he's not perfect, but I think he's, all, I think he's already probably better. And I, despite the EPA and all that stuff, I think he's arguably already better than the guys we have. You look at the amount of targets, again, with less routes, less games, he's already up there with Lazard and Tunyon. He's ahead of Randall Cobb, which seems surprising. You think he would be that dude. Randall Cobb, I guess Randall's, put it this way, Randall's played the same number of games, eight. He has 16 targets compared to Romeo Dobbs, 18. And say, okay, well, how many actual, uh, you know, catches and whatnot? Well, from a drops standpoint, which is more important because, you know, non-catchable passes are not the receiver's fault, Randall Cobb has one drop, Romeo has one drop, Robert Tunyon has one drop, Alan Lazard has three. We desperately need that guy. And we we knew this, right? We We knew it from a sort of, you know, without being able to back it up, it just seems so, sort of intuitive to have that sort of one-two punch. You got the deep guy, and then you got your sort of possession guy. But when I can put it to you this specifically and say that the missing component for Aaron Rodgers, the missing component for this offense at this point, is that guy in the short passing range. That guy that can get you, just get you six. The guy that'll get you nine. We got the guy that'll get you 25 or a, or a 43-yard touchdown. We have that. We're really struggling to... And, and that's what Lazard is supposed to be. That's what Randall Cobb is supposed to be. We're just not getting it from them. Now, the other issue, though, is that part of this is just Aaron Rodgers' fault. 18 targets. He only caught 10 of them, and he only dropped one of them. So they need to do a better job of getting on the same page. But this is it. This is the final piece. 
I can say that confidently. We, the offensive line is looking good. The running backs, you know, they might alternate. You know, one day Jones is the guy, the next day Dylan's the guy. Maybe once in a while neither of them are the guy, but we've, we've got the guys. Bad days happen. Same with the offensive line. But the offensive line is looking good. The running backs are looking good. The passing game is certainly improving, and Christian Watson has really opened things up. The final piece is Romeo Dobbs. I know I said don't get your expectations too high, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to. I'm, I'm telling you the importance of it, but I'm not telling you necessarily that he's going to come in and just be a phenom. But I know the Packers knew how important Christian Watson was, and they thrust him into that role, and it's been great. We need Romeo Dobbs to be the guy. I think the Packers know they need him to be the guy, and I think they're going to lean on him a little bit. Now, if it was earlier in the season, which is already proven incorrect, what I'm about to say is already wrong based on what we saw of how much he was utilized early. But you could say early in the season, you could understand why they wouldn't lean on Romeo Dobbs. They would lean on Randall Cobb. They would lean on Alan Lazard because that's their area. That's their thing. That's where the trust lies. That's all that stuff. But they didn't. I mean, they did, but they didn't. Romeo still was getting force-fed the ball. And, and again, all the talk about Rodgers not trusting guys, I mean, he's, he's, he's staring down Christian Watson. And he was already doing that to Romeo early on. Not that that's a good thing, but you want to talk about trust. You have Alan Lazard, who you already know and already trust. You have Randall Cobb, who you trust your entire livelihood to. I mean, he's like a brother to you. On top of you know this guy has a mind meld thing going on with you, and still in critical situations, is he looking at Randall? Maybe once in a while, but more often than not, he's looking at Christian freaking Watson to pick up, you know, on fourth down and short, you're looking at Watson to get open. That is Randall Cobb territory. I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, Rodgers, I'm, I'm not saying, he, he clearly is not just playing favorites because his friends are the other guys. Rodgers just knows. And, and I think that's part of the issue with the, the complaints about Aaron Rodgers is that it's, it's meant to sound petty. I don't think it's petty. I think it's, it's you know, it, it, as much as it might be irrational, it's also rational. I'm not going to look your way because you're not ready. Well, you kind of need to try to do it. No, forget that. I'm not doing it. They're not ready. But what happens when you got two rookies that are clearly the best two wide receivers on your team? Is Rodgers going to be petty and not look their way because of simple mistakes? Is he going to only look at his friends? No. He is going to choose to ignore that Randall Cobb is even on the field, even in Randall Cobb's situations. On fourth and short, he wants to go to the deep threat. Why? Because Christian Watson's that freaking dude. That's why. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's wrong of Rodgers to stare guys down. It's wrong of Rodgers to isolate certain people and to rule other people out. But it ain't petty. It's all about trust. And Rodgers relies very, very, very heavily, almost to a fault, on trust. Again, that was my big frustration when I went back and watched the other game is how many times you just lock into people. It's like, come on, man, you got to be better than that. But I just think his mind right now is saying, I don't trust any, and, and he's in part talking about Randall and Lazard, not doing it. I mean, he, he, he doesn't even seem to trust Matt LaFleur necessarily. Again, you got, you know, I, occasionally he'll, he'll lock into Randall. Occasionally he'll lock into Lazard based on what he thinks is going to happen or if he thinks this is a good route for them. But you've got schemed plays that are wide open, that are expected to be there and uh, Rodgers is locked into Randall. I don't know why. He just made up his mind. So it's a problem. But again, just for the sake of clarity, the narrative that he uh, just refuses to work with rookies is not true. He refuses to work with guys that don't know what they're doing, and usually rookies don't know what they're doing. And this is definitive proof that if a rookie comes in and can prove himself and show that he's putting in the work and is Getting, doing everything he can to get on the same page with his quarterback and is out there making plays, Rodgers will not only 
choose to go to you, he will make you his preferred target and quickly. Again, Romeo in what week? I mean, week one right out of the gate, he's getting force-fed the ball. Five targets, four receptions, 37 yards. But it was week three against Tampa when he had eight receptions. I mean, you got Romeo and Christian out here just breaking records. So I'm, I'm, I'm simultaneously trying to do two things at once. On one hand, get everybody to just relax because we don't want to expect too much of them and then start to turn on them because, you know, they're, they're not meeting our ridiculous expectations. On the other hand, telling you that these two guys are the keys to our success, <laughs> um, which is two different things. Whether or not they can achieve, you know, what we need from them is, is separate from what we need from them. But um, they may not reach expectation, but at the same time, Anyways, another narrative I wanted to kind of uh, cover is the Watson versus Ramsey thing. I keep seeing this come up. You know, what's Watson going to be able to do against Jalen Ramsey? Well, let's get the very obvious point out of the way. Jalen Ramsey, like every corner in the NFL, doesn't shadow at 100% ever. Nobody does that. It's not a thing that happens in the NFL. Nobody shadows somebody 100% of a game. Um, if they did, first of all, you'd be talking about man coverage, and the Rams are one of the most zone-heavy teams in football. So there's not going to be a Ramsey versus Watson thing, and even if Ramsey is on Watson's side, again, if they're in zone coverage, he's not going to be sticking with them man-to-man. The most Jalen Ramsey has covered a guy, this is looking at last year because, again, PFF apparently stopped doing this, but... Um, Last year, he covered DK Metcalf 77% of the time. So the point is, I'm less concerned with, you know, is he going to be on him or whatever? It's, it's more to do with what percentage of the time is he going to be covering Christian as opposed to everybody else? Because I want to know how much respect he's getting. I don't know if the Rams even are viewing this as we need to put Jalen on Watson. I don't know that that's the case. If they're just going to send Christian down the field, you know, a large portion of the time, is that what you want Ramsey doing? Just trying to sprint down the field to keep up with Watson. Is that the best use of Jalen Ramsey? Considering his speed, and I don't, I know Jalen's fast, but I don't, I don't know if he can 100% keep up with him. Wouldn't it be a better use to try to mitigate the speed with your zone coverage? That is to say, you have a corner that runs with him underneath that passes off to a safety over the top. And maybe use Jalen on the other side where you've got Romeo or Lazard or whoever that's actually trying to, you know, run real routes and, and get separation. I don't know. I'm just asking. But it will be really interesting to see what the Rams feel is the best way to hurt the Packers. And if you do start seeing guys like Jalen Ramsey lined up a lot of the time over to Christian Watson's side, I think that's a big deal. That is an insane amount of respect. And it's the, sort of the next level for a guy like Watson. Because again, you know about the big plays, but do you need to cover him like lockdown on a play-to-play basis? Then again, it's not even so much a, a, a coverage thing when we're talking about, you know, like, for example, a go route. Not to say that Jalen can't mitigate that. He has the speed and the ability to try to, you know, ride him out of bounds and all that kind of stuff. And you can still have good coverage, but it just seems like a waste of his talents. If Christian can kind of beat you off the line and get down the field, it kind of sucks. Now, unfortunately, I don't have that information to see who he was matched up against. I wish somebody would track that. And, and I mean, I guess I could do it myself, but 
The best that I have is, is PFF showing who he caught passes against. And usually the, the thing with this that's interesting is it really goes to show you that, it, that there is no like one-on-one matchup in the NFL. Lazard caught passes against four guys. Jack Sanborn, linebacker. Josh Blackwell, this is against the Bears. Slot corner. Nick Morrow, linebacker. And Jalen Jones, corner. Christian Watson also caught, uh, oh, he didn't catch. He was 0 for 2 against Jalen Jones. He caught 1 for 14 yards against Elijah Hicks. He was targeted once against Jalen Johnson, the other cornerback. He didn't catch that one. And then two catches for 34 yards against Josh Blackwell, the slot corner. So who was like he who was he lined up against? Come on, man. There is no man-to-man, you know, seven targets, four receptions against this one corner because that's the guy they put you up against. Everybody's catching passes against linebackers. Why? Because everybody's playing zone. <laughs> So it is a marginally interesting question. I think the bigger, more interesting question, which would be harder to answer, and you need film guys or whatever to be able to help you with this, but the question would be, how are they trying to take away Christian Watson? How much energy are they putting into taking away Christian Watson? Can you tell by watching their defensive game plan that they really wanted to take him away, or was he somewhat of a, you know, not a major part of their defensive plan? Because that's what it's going to be. It's going to be an overarching plan. It's not a guy. Against the Eagles, he caught two catches against Marcus Epps, the safety. He caught one against Kaiser White, a linebacker. Caught one against Darius Slay, corner. And then was targeted twice but didn't catch either against cornerback James Bradbury and safety Kayvon Wallace. I mean, it's evenly distributed against all these different guys. The only time it looks like somebody was really kind of manned up against him was uh, the Tennessee Titans had Christian Fulton, seemingly. And maybe maybe it was only a handful of times and he was targeted every time. I can't really tell. But he had one target, one reception against Greg Mabin, corner, one target, one reception against Andrew Adams, and then four targets, two receptions against Christian Fulton. So I will be interested to see how often um, Ramsey is is on his side. But I, I do think the more interesting, broader question that I'm going to struggle to answer is, how much did they really try to take him away? And if that is their plan, what did the Packers do about it, right? They believe they can stop the run with their front. They don't need to bring extra guys. They don't need to load the box. And then if they put Jalen or or extra help or whatever you want to call it to take away Christian, what do the Packers have left? We can't run, and they're trying to take away our deep threat. Well, the very obvious answer is you go behind the line of scrimmage, but in front of all the guys stopping the deep passes with, let's say, oh, I don't know, Romeo Dobbs in the short to intermediate range. Can we do it? Again, this is what I mean when I say it's the final piece of the puzzle. Most defenses can take a thing away. Some defenses, especially if you have a really good front, can maybe take two things away. If you want to play, you know, off and, and really protect against a deep shot and you can win with just your, your front, all right, you can slow down or stop the run, and you can really mitigate, if not erase, deep passing. But that's only assuming we can't just beat you up in the short to intermediate. I have to assume that's their plan going in, and they're going to see how it goes. We need somebody to step up in that range and just say, if you're just going to play this soft zone stuff, we're just going to pick you apart. We're going to find the open zone. We're going to, And the Packers should be able to do that. You've got Rodgers who should be able to find it. You've got guys like Cobb and Lazard who should be able to get to those spots. I think Lazard, for whatever it's worth, has done a good job, at least with that, finding the, the soft spot in the zone. But that's going to be the big test. And, and this has been a bad passing defense, no question about it. This is not a good defense overall. It's a good run defense. That's about it. 
Anyways, obviously we got some football games to watch today. Um, Philadelphia-Chicago should be a glorious game to watch. I'm hoping, I really, really hope that the uh, some kind of a freakish thing doesn't take place and we're able to, unlike the Vikings game, just enjoy a good beating. You know what I mean? I just, I just want to enjoy my day. I want to watch a beating. Uh, Detroit and the Jets, I have every reason to believe that Detroit should win that game. Um, I know this is seen as like a high-powered Detroit offense against an elite Jets defense. I just see it as a Detroit team that's playing good football and a Jets team that's not. But we'll see. Maybe it'll be interesting. Hopefully the Jets win. Otherwise, somewhat mildly interesting games, Dallas and Jacksonville. I mean, can root for Jacksonville, see how that goes. Bucks bengals I mean, I just don't like the Bucks. so hopefully the Bengals can win. Washington and the Giants is probably the most consequential for those that are interested in us getting into the playoffs, which probably most of us. But uh, it's going to be a big one. We need... We need those teams to, uh, well, we need it to not be a tie. Let's put it that way. Once uh, once one of these teams loses, it'll give us somewhat of a better picture of where we need to go from there, but we at least need to pick a path. Um, I can't help but feel like we want the Giants to lose just because of how bad they've been. If they lose this one, there's a good chance that they could win a couple more, which would obviously work to our benefit. This is all assuming we win the next four. On the other hand, if we assume that the Giants are just going to probably lose out anyways because they're trash, maybe they get lucky and beat Washington, and then we could have both teams being bad. I don't, I don't know, but I think the safe bet is to just root for Washington to beat the Giants and just continued collapse of the New York Giants through the end of the season. Um, and that's it. And then we got Packers, Rams, and I'm pretty sure I shouldn't even say. I was going to say I'm pretty sure we all know who to root for on that one, but uh, it would probably be wrong if I thought we all agreed on that. But I am just hoping for a good game. I'm hoping for the, uh, oh, we can talk about it more tomorrow, but just want to see good things, man. I just want to see win, lose, or draw. Give me some good Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, Zach Tom, Kingsley, Wyatt for whatever couple snaps he's going to be in there, Quay, maybe a little Toure. Continue this uh, dominant rookie class season that we've had so far. But anyways, I'm going to leave it at that. Got to get this podcast out to you. By the way, I am sorry for... Uh, those of you that are having trouble playing the podcast, I don't know what is going on. Uh, the last 24 hours or so, um, some uh, Spotify, it's not showing up. Apparently iTunes, it's not playing. I'm going through trying to play a couple right now on Google Podcasts, and it just won't load. I don't exactly know what's going on. Um, and it's Sunday, so I can't talk to the people over at my uh, at the hosting company to get some kind of an explanation of what's going wrong. I'm guessing it's on their end, something is wrong, um, but I don't know. I'm not really sure. But anyways, hopefully you're able to listen to this. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Goodbye.